Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. The deserts will become as green as the mountains of Lebanon, as lovely as Mount Carmel or the plain of Sharon. There the Lord will display his glory, the splendor of our God. With this news, strengthen those who have tired hands and encourage those who have weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear, for your God is coming to destroy your enemies. He is coming to save you. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams will water the wasteland. The parched ground will become a pool, and springs of water will satisfy the thirsty land. Marsh grass and reeds and rushes will flourish where desert jackals once lived. And a great road will go through the once deserted land. It will be named the Highway of Holiness. Evil-minded people will never travel on it. It will be only for those who walk in God's ways. Fools will never walk there. Lions will not lurk along its course, nor any other ferocious beasts. There will be no other dangers. Only the redeemed will walk on it. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. You ever wonder what God is thinking about conditions in our world right now? What does he think about what's going on in Ukraine? And uh, if we think about farther, maybe the Holocaust or uh, Syria's woes that they've experienced, or even our own time in the U.S. Wendell Willis writes that some scholars agree that, that 30, Isaiah 34 and 35 go together. They're even apocalyptic in their tone. They sound a lot like Revelation. There's that kind of exaggeration in these two, uh, two chapters. In other words, Isaiah is using language that helps us see what God thinks about all of this and what God is preparing for us. Isaiah 34 is, is the, uh, the more revelation kind of language. It's, it's pretty, pretty terrible what God says there. God is furious about their army, armies, uh, no doubt a reference to the violence and domination that was going on in the world powers at that time. Uh, Revelation 34 says their dead will be left unburied. That's pretty, uh, pretty terrible, isn't it? The heavens will melt away. Stars will fall from the sky. When God is, number three, when God has finished his work, God's work in the heavens, it will fall on Edom. The land will be drenched with blood. Descendants of Esau, who were military enemies of, of Israel, also uh, descendants of Esau. 
Edom is ecologically compromised. Thorns will overtake its palaces. It will no longer be the, gl the glorious place it was. Ruins will become a haunt for, the, for jackals. God has surveyed the land, Isaiah says, and deeded it over to the creatures. This is 34.17. So pretty extravagant language, pretty, pretty violent, pretty angry language in Isaiah 34. Counterpart to, to Isaiah 34 is Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is a perfect picture of Advent hope. It's a, it's a perfect picture of, of what goes on in our minds if we really think about what God is doing. Uh, Isaiah says in verse 2, There the Lord will display His glory, the splendor of our God. Scholars are in disagreement about what these two chapters are about. One is that Isaiah is writing to, to Judah either after the Assyrians had, had come in and, and done damage to the nation in, in 701 B.C. or uh, after the Babylonian attack in which they carried off people and they completely, utterly destroyed the city, 586 B.C. So not really very far between those two dates, they have these two horrible things happen to their, their nation. So this is about 115 years, and so some people think, well, this is what Isaiah is writing about. This is what Isaiah is saying is, that this period was awful and terrible and, and he describes it in those kinds of terms. But better times are coming, chapter 35. There's another group that thinks it's referring to the coming of Jesus. The, what, what we're celebrating in Christmas is that first coming of Jesus. They think it has something to do with Rome and all of that, but I don't think this is it. I don't think this fits then because Jesus didn't come and drive Rome out. He didn't get Rome's boot off of the neck of Judah at that time. So we don't have that kind of glorious, kind of apocalyptic sort of delivery. Another guy named Moyer, and I, I think I really agree with him more, is that this passage, 35, is referring to the second coming of Christ. What we also wait for. I would remind you that, that Isaiah is writing to his people. And I, I think it seems significant to me that this passage that we've looked at is not mentioned in the New Testament. So, I'm wondering, why did the New Testament writers not see something in this for, for their time? I would also remind you that what God promises us is contingent. It's contingent on our 
our accepting it, our obedience to it. Uh, Deuteronomy 24, uh, pardon me, Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses' second speech to the nation of Israel. They're about to go into the land of Canaan. This is the second generation, by the way. First generation has died off because they were rebellious and didn't do what God wanted them to do. So he now addresses the second generation about to go receive the promise. And he says, this is what God will do for you. This is how he's going to bless you. This is what you're going to enjoy if you will keep your agreement with God. If you will be the sort of people God wants you to be. We see that kind of personal responsibility uh, throughout Scripture. Samson is made weak and, and blind and dies a terrible death because he refused to keep his Nazarite vow. Moses doesn't enter the promised land. He sees it from a mountaintop, but he doesn't see it. He doesn't go into it because he didn't obey God. Solomon was a, a corrupt and adulterous king. He had harems full of wives that he, he married for political convenience. And his nation, unified under his rule, split into the north and the south because of his life. So we see this kind of contingency throughout Scripture. God says, how can you expect me to, to bless you if you're not willing to love me? Well, what exactly does God want? And I think Isaiah goes into this in, in verses 3 and 4. Isaiah says, strengthen those who have tired hands. We see people like that all, all the time around us, don't we? Encourage those with weak knees. Say, be strong to those with fearful hearts. Remind them that God is coming to save you. You know, it's, it's like Isaiah is saying, be people of hope. Be people of faith. Be people who live out in their daily lives the faith that they have their belief in God's ability to, to restore things. I think this points to a posture of trust, really. All boils down to that. Uh, trust is, is uh, the word that uh, we translate believe, but it, believe doesn't really get at it. Belief is not really enough of a word. Uh, trust is what God wants. He, he wants me to embrace Him and to trust Him. I've told you the story before about the guy that would uh, cross Niagara Falls on a, a table. It's a true story. And he would go back and forth, and he would do outrageous things out in the middle of the, of the table, over the falls. One day he takes a wheelbarrow, and he 
says to a crowd that is gathered, do you think I can, I can roll somebody across the table? Yes, they said. Belief. That's belief. They really believed that. They believed that guy had that kind of skill. He said, who's willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Zero. That's trust. And that's what this word pistuo means. Trust. Getting in the wheelbarrow with God. Isaiah ends this prophecy by talking about a highway without any road hazards. Can you imagine that? It's known by its holiness. It's known by the way that people live who who walk on that highway. Evil-minded people won't be there. I think because they don't seek its destination. Evil people don't want to go where that road leads. I honestly believe that we have some people like that in, in our own nation right now leading us. They don't want that destination. Oh, yeah, they use all the right language, but that's not what they really want. The things you normally associate with danger in our world will not be in this world of Isaiah 35. It won't be there. Uh, You can walk on its streets and nothing bad will happen to you. Nobody will try to lie to you or sell you illicit drugs or hurt you in any way. There will be no marketing firm trying to win your allegiance and worship. This, This is unique in its character, this highway. Isaiah said, those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return, entering Jerusalem with singing and full joy. They know the beauty and the value of what they are experiencing. They are willing to commit their lives to live in this place. Back to the word trust. In a list of Advent texts, you generally find Isaiah 35 in those lists. I have some doubts about whether Isaiah really was thinking about the ultimate kind of deliverance. Uh, I think given his audience and given the times, Isaiah probably had in his mind there's going to be some time in the near future when this is going to happen to Israel, but it didn't. And since I believe God is true, I think this, this has to refer to the second coming, the end of time, when God brings everything together in the way that he intended it to be in the beginning. This is an Advent text if there ever was one. And I think Advent people think a lot about these things. They really do. Advent people know what God has promised and live their life accordingly. They know where God is taking them, what God has in store for them, and what 
must be done in order to receive that promise. This is what escaped the first, the first generation of, of uh, Jews coming out of Egypt. Is they, they didn't grasp it. And they didn't do what God asked them to do. Advent people know what God wants them to do. Not in the sense of, of working. I don't mean that at all. I don't mean that, this, that, that somehow we have, by being this sort of people, earned that. We haven't. I am saying that it makes sense if you believe God, you live the way God calls you to, to live. So I, I would really, I guess the point of this sermon is, is to ask you to think about how much Advent and how much what God is doing enters into your thinking every day. And what does that call for from me, from you? It's a worthy thing to think about uh, as we uh, enter Christmas very soon. Let's pray. Oh God, what a vision Isaiah painted for his people. May we see how that vision also applies to us in the future that we have in store. Move us along on your highway of holiness. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.